So we're going to have a look at some research around the knowledge economy and what that means for organisations and how the knowledge economy has been changing, particularly with the advent of technology and AI and things like that. Oh, here comes John Coleman. Hi, John. How are you doing? We're just getting started. Good. Thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Good. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Happy New Year. Belated Merry Christmas and all that. Indeed. <laughs> right. So uh, let's get on. Um, the knowledge economy, what does that actually mean? So the research definition anyway of the knowledge economy is this. It's where knowledge and information have become the main drivers of growth, productivity and competitiveness within an economy. And we're usually talking about a nation economy here. Um, and the essence of it really is that in modern times anyway, and certainly within not, um, knowledge economies, knowledge tends to be seen as giving economic power and giving things like um, competitive advantage and having the right configuration of knowledge within an organization in order to be able to do what you're going to be doing uh, is clearly important. Um, but before we kind of start and get into the research, I'd like to just think about something first, which is this. I've kind of split up some eras here in the 1960s, 1980s, the 2000s, and up to 2020, 23 today. Um, and what I've done is constructed a series of questions that I think are interesting questions that are around this whole issue about knowledge and the importance of knowledge within organisations. I'm just going to quickly run through these and then what I'll do is I'll just put you into breakout rooms to have a quick chat about these questions and kind of what it means for organisations. So there's six questions here that are kind of a starter for 10, if you like. So the first one is what kinds of knowledge gives you power and economic advantage in each of these eras? And I think you may find that they're different as we kind of go down through them. What knowledge had status in each of these eras and what about now? So what knowledge is considered to have high status now compared to maybe 20 years ago, 40 years ago? What was the expertise in in these eras and who were the experts and what was that about? And now, you know, who are the experts and what's that area of expertise? What knowledge has power? and who controls the knowledge, again, in each of the eras. I'll put this slide in the group, so you'll have them there. And then just thinking about the eras themselves, how would you encapsulate the thinking that was going on in those eras around things like knowledge, organisations, business, and things like that? And then lastly, what would wisdom look like in each of these areas? What was considered to be wise then and what is considered to be wise now? So let's go and have a couple of chat rooms. And uh, see how that works. Yeah, beautiful. So there's a three and a four. Um, I'll 
put the uh, the slides in the in the breakout rooms. Ten minutes, something like that, and then we'll come back together and see where we're at with these, and then we'll kind of march on and have a look at some of the the research. Have fun. Doc, can you hear me? I can. Yes. Uh, this group asked me to speak, and of course, you know that can be a long-winded thing. So I try to make it short. But <laughs> offline, I have been wanting to tell you for the last six months. I would appreciate you at some point in time creating a research briefing on bullshit. Because if you go to Google Scholar, if you go to in Georgia, what well, we use Galileo with our university system, and you put in the word bullshit, you see a tremendous flow of academic study on this subject. And what we said in our group, basically, yeah, I'll tell you in a summary, and here's what everybody said, the importance of critical thinking, the importance of sourcing, and then what I said, true expertise in today's world, it hinges on one word, specificity. That's the antidote to the bullshit, specificity. The more specific you can be about a particular issue, the more your subject matter expertise. And that's kind of... Uh, John, did I say that right? Where's uh, the one that made me talk? I don't even see her on the screen. John Coleman. <laughs> one that made John. you talk. <laughs> no, John, the other young lady. She, But she brought up the academic side of that. I brought up the, I guess, the practical side of it. Right. So the first thing is, strangely enough, bizarrely, tomorrow when the next review comes out, there is a paper in there about bullshit. Good, excellent. So <laughs> it's That's like a, I knew a already. Christmas gift for the old boy here in Georgia. Great. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so it's all about critical thinking. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, we had a similar discussion, actually. That's where we ended up. Uh, we were talking about, well, first we said not not too many, uh, well, we were born in the 60s, so we have no idea what it was like, but um, pre-internet, um, you know, we went to the library, read books, um, post-internet, there's lots of stuff out there. Uh, perhaps the challenge now is what's what's actually valid, because there's so much, and, and people come across as experts when they're not. And so... Um, uh, we we talked about you know the AI. So Frank brought up you know the AI phenomenon in the last year. Um, uh, Alex was Alex's was talking about you know in a particular area, aviation, for example. You have to know more than just flying. Um, so where we ended up was that um, when we were talking about wisdom, wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing in our view. Um, okay. And so it's the application of the knowledge and then what you do with that, not mm -hmm. just uh, the tangible things, but how does this affect people? Sort of that uh, complexity of thinking, which we're not equipped uh, generally uh, to do in this world. So so that includes things like, so you're saying wisdom is more than knowledge and it includes ethics and the kind of human bits, the complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Cool. And and do you so, perceive that there has been a a change in what we perceive to be wise going through the years? Doc. Yeah. To, to to me in this context, wisdom is the ability 
to anticipate the consequences of a decision you make in today's world. I, I just I see that as the as the uh, as the I guess the definition, lack of better terms, for me, of wisdom. So the ability to be able to work out what the consequences are likely to be of things. Of course, there's a consequence to everything. Yes. Yes, definitely. Brilliant. Interesting. Okay, good. Uh, any other thoughts on these questions? Well, just to from your final question, if I remember it correctly about wisdom, I think the um, I think the principles have remained the same from time to time. I mean, I think um, Alexis spoke about just uh, being aware of your environment and what's actually happening. So that would be an example of principle. But for example, uh, in the now, um, you know, one of the things we spoke about looking into the future is how machines and humans work together. That's probably going to be where some of your wisdom needs to be. At some point recently in the 2000s, we were talking about the ability to learn and learn and relearn, which, which has been a very big part of learning and development. So there are certain truisms in the eras, but the principles of what makes you wise, I think, have remained the same. So the principles have stayed the same. It's what we've applied it to has changed. Another thing yeah. I would say as well, uh, David, would be um, the whole idea of complexity that uh, in the uh, in the last century, I'm sure there were lots of complex things, but it, it just felt more complicated as in you get the right experts around the table and you'll figure it out. But uh, And uh, wisdom in this century is almost like, well, it's just embracing that you don't know things and that you have to just try different ways of uh of learning like experimenting being empirical things like that being open to fresh thinking for example uh diversity of thought would be a big thing in this century which wouldn't have been such a big thing in the last century yes yeah so so looking at a greater diversity of thought being able to look at things from different yeah. perspectives and things like that yeah okay great yeah so all of this is kind of germane to this whole idea about the the knowledge economy and how it affects kind of organizations and the way that the knowledge economy has, has developed over the years and what was considered to be knowledge over the years has kind of changed and the way that we've looked at that knowledge has changed. I've, I've got to put up some other questions. We're not going to discuss them now and they'll, they'll come out with a handout. Um, but it's worth just kind of, and this is kind of linked a little bit to what John's talking about, consequences and things, is thinking forward. So we've just moved up to now with these questions. So if we rewrite the questions slightly and start thinking, you know, what kinds of knowledge will give power and economic advantage in tomorrow, like in a few days' time, next year, and in, well, 16 years' time, that, 2040, 16 years, that's all, right? Um what knowledge will have status and what about now? What will the expertise be like in next year, given the way AI is moving, machine learning is moving? What knowledge is likely to have power next year and who will be in control of that knowledge? We'll start to see that there's a distinction very shortly. 
Um, and how are we going to be able to encapsulate the thinking of now, the thinking of next year, and the thinking of 2040? And then what might wisdom look like next year as we get more and more into AI and in 2040 in 16 years' time? And what is wise now and what will wise look like in 2040? Given what Frank was saying about the principles will be the same, but our perceptions of it may change as they probably have since the 1960s. So given that backdrop, let's start to have a look at some of what the research is saying around the changes that are occurring right now in terms of, um, in, in terms of the knowledge economy. So there's a kind of a slew of research and they're basically finding that there's kind of four levers or drivers of change within the, the knowledge economy. The first one is the technological advancements that we see, we all know about, we're very aware of things like AI, machine learning, and those kinds of things are having a, a huge impact. Changes in the workforce dynamics. So um, just the idea that these days, it's very easy to reach out to a global talent pool and start pulling in people from all around the world, as we'll have a look at, becomes quite important in this thing. And the dynamics between people, how the dynamics between, so if we go back to that question about the 1960s, the 1980s, the 2000s, how people's relationships with their managers, with the organisation and leaders has changed, and what things like the pandemic did to those relationships that that's having an impact on the knowledge economy. Then the actual evolving nature of knowledge management, and that's not just because of the tools, it's the tools are also having an impact. So as we'll see in a minute, about what we can store, what we can use, and the nature of knowledge itself is, is changing. So, and within that and connected to this whole idea of social change and trends is the democratization of knowledge. So we've got more access to more knowledge quicker now than we ever had. And certainly if you go back to the 60s and to a certain extent the 80s, you you were having to, to read books. You were like there was a delay in publication, delay in seeing it, You've got to be in the know that the thing was, you know, these days, there's a lot being pushed at us that wasn't being put. You had to go searching for it. So there are huge changes there. So these are the four main levers of change around the knowledge economy. And this is important because it, it kind of denotes what organisations are going to be doing and how they're going to be responding to, to these changes. So let's have a look. So this is a, a study that's just been released um, about six, seven weeks ago. And it found these were the main changes in the knowledge economy as a result largely of AI, but those are the changes as well. So the first change that it, it picked up is that there's significant economic and knowledge uncertainty so the knowledge uncertainty, like the economic uncertainty, we know markets are shifting rapidly, new products can suddenly sweep the board. You know, you just look at the rise of ChatGPT in a few days compared to the rise of Google. It took like, I think it was about four months before Google got to the 
the level of readership that ChatGPT got to in a few hours. So those kinds of speeds and issues. But there's considerable uncertainty about knowledge, and I know this sounds a bit weird, what knowledge is, particularly given things like the amount of disinformation, misinformation, and as John was talking, bullshit and like pseudoscience that gets like that, that whole idea about uh, that, uh, it, you know, a lie has got twice around the earth before the truth has got its socks on, that kind of stuff. So, and what knowledge is, is changing, as we'll see in a minute. Then there's the pace of change in the workforce, the demographics of the workforce, how the workforce is being constructed and reconstructed, and we'll have a look at that in a second. And the shifting dynamics between employees and employers and what people are expecting. So that relationship between the worker, the manager, the leader, the organisation, and their job has is changing rapidly at the moment. That There's a, a trend at the moment and a need for increasingly niche talent. So people who are very specialised in small areas, like, so th this, like two years ago, nobody had heard of a prompt engineer. Now, one of the most highly paid jobs, there was a, an advert that I saw, there was someone, I can't remember which organisation it was, they were advertising for a prompt engineer um, at, it was $900,000 a year. We hadn't even heard of a prompt engineer 18 months ago. <laughs> it's like, it's nuts. So, and yet, what were the core knowledge workers are now being laid off. And we're seeing that again as a result of AI and various other things. That there's an increasing interest in cultures of agility, flexibility, and responsiveness as people are trying to keep up and organizations are trying to keep up and stay ahead and get a competitive advantage or continue doing whatever their, their services are. That employee expectations are changing about the nature of work whether they're going to be working from home, all sorts of areas are shifting in, in that, and that's creating a change in the knowledge, knowledge economy. This idea that talent is global, that you can just reach out and get those niche workers from anywhere, and you don't even need to bring them into work anymore. So they don't need to travel. You can use them for as long or as short as you need. So the whole gig economy thing has created significant change. Then what that's doing is it's creating a whole series of diversity issues for organisations because they're bringing in talent from all sorts of places and how do they go about making sure that that talent, the diversity of that talent can communicate with each other, can do the things that they're meant to be doing and work, work successfully together. We've done quite a lot of research briefings around this. And one of the things that we, we've talked about in previous things is about this kind of inverted U-shape. There's a lot of, well, as John would say, bullshit. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on about, you know, more diversity equals more creativity, more diversity equals more innovation. That's not true. It does to a certain extent. But there are things such as, oops, there are things such as too little diversity, so we get a lot of groupthink and the kinds of things that you'd be doing there. But you can have too much diversity where people are just using completely different languages and can't communicate with each other. Or they're not thinking in a way that's 
they're able to come together and collaborate. So there's this kind of sweet spot of diversity, and that sweet spot differs from context to context, situation to situation, and the level of expertise, niching, and everything else that's within that group. So this is becoming a kind of a core area, particularly with a more global workforce. The, the nature, and we've talked about this, the nature of knowledge management itself is changing and what is considered to be knowledge, which we'll go on to in a second, that we're starting to reconfigure or the ability of organisations to reconfigure knowledge within the organisation and use it in different ways to see what's still pertinent knowledge and what knowledge actually is now out of date is a core part of knowledge management now. So gone are the days of having a database with lots of practices and stuff in. It needs to be much more dynamically managed and updated. And a lot of it's being able to, as we'll see in a second, um, being able to predict things as well. So it's not just knowledge for the workers to use, data for the workers, it's data for machines as well. That were in the era now of not customized knowledge maps so that organizations have a map of the knowledge that and the data that they've got access to and that they understand that that landscape that they're involved in whether the landscape's lacking or not whether they can actually see the landscape and there's been a shift from kind of tacit knowledge, the kind of knowledge that you can write down in policies and documents and things, into all types of assets of being now considered knowledge. So like, you know, diagrams and things like this, AI can read it and can interpret it. There are lots of areas of data. So there's, there's a whole area around um, being able to read, so machine read people's behaviour and people's body language and using that as data within the organization of how people are reacting to things, how customers are reacting in the moment when they pick up a package. That we're moving towards more proactive systems. And what that means is that they're able to, in the moment, using live data from the whole system rather than historical data, as somebody's making a decision, create a prompt and say, actually, as a result of this data, you may want to change your decision or you may want to reconsider your decision. And here's some some new data that you know, might want to see and advanced analytics. That we're getting increasingly more customized systems, both for the organization. So the systems and things rather than off the shelf or large systems that a company will sell to many organizations those systems themselves will customize themselves and are customizing themselves to the uses and needs of the organization and then that customization is now going through into the customer so that there's a closer product customer fit to exactly what they need and how they need it and when they need it and through all of that, and they're the main trends that are occurring in terms of changing the knowledge economy. So we've got a completely different landscape than we had 10 years ago, even. And the 10 knowledge trends that are kind of coming out, the kinds of technologies that are driving that are considered to be these. Things like AI-generated knowledge, 
And again, some of that's good stuff and some of it's a load of rubbish. You can just look at what ChatGPT turns out at times and you think, well, digital systems competencies. So organizations are getting better at, they've got a better digital systems competency, so of individuals. And the digital systems themselves are becoming more competent. Blockchain knowledge management, open innovation. So there's a shift occurring where organizations are increasingly engaging environmental scanning and bringing information into the organization and reconfiguring it for their own use. So organizations, rather than the whole, we only touch the stuff that's invented here, there's a lot more cross-fertilization across industries and outside of the industries. And AI is helping with that in, in considerable ways. Cloud technology, cybersecurity is becoming a big thing, particularly with AI and the whole chat GPT thing. A lot of organizations who thought that their documents were secure suddenly found them being presented through ChatGPT and things, thinking that nobody else had seen them. But they're now part of an AI. And there's been one or two cases where organizations have had a go at open AI because they've recognized some of their documents that shouldn't have been in open but they were somewhere. Somebody had taken them home or done something, stored them somewhere that they were able to scrape. Uh, and so cybersecurity and organizations are really thinking about what knowledge we need to hide for competitive advantage. What knowledge don't we want out there? How do we secure our internal stuff while still we're trying to be part of a global network of collecting knowledge? So there's this kind of weird thing going on with cybersecurity. We've talked about knowledge analytics, predictive knowledge analytics. Um, robotics is part of this, quantum computing, and being able to do simultaneous calculations that affect each other. And I've got a handout that I'm pairing around all of these and the impact that they're having. And then 5G knowledge networks. And they're seen as having a significant impact in allowing significantly more data to be moved about and analyzed in the moment so it's live data as people are doing things within organizations so you can see actually so not people can see because it's too much data but the machines can actually present um, and make decisions about what's going on and we sent out or were about to send out a research briefing around um, automated management so management by machine and so there are algorithms that will give feedback to teams and they're largely being managed by AI machine learning. Uh, and the research briefing that we sent out, what was interesting about it is that they found that leaders had very different perceptions of teams that were being managed by machines than teams that were being managed by humans. And teams that were being managed by machines were seen as being less creative by the leaders even though the leaders didn't realize that's what they were doing that that was the perception and they were giving those teams that would be managed by algorithms and things fewer resources than um than teams that were being managed by humans without realizing that's what they were doing so there's this kind of undercurrent i suppose of perception of these things and it's having a, a an impact and a significant impact.
So just to round off, uh, I just want to have a quick look at some of the research and what organisations are doing in order to try and keep ahead of all of this. And it's largely around developing these two things, these two types of capabilities. And this is what this study, the 2023 study from about six weeks ago was showing. And that the organisations who focus on these two things, relational and dynamic capabilities, I'll explain what they are. Relational capabilities, largely is this, is the ability to effectively manage and cultivate relationships within network, with network members and strategic partners, and they're considered as key, as you'll see in a minute. And, and those relationships become really critical in this process. And then about developing dynamic capabilities, which is the ability to adapt to change an environment by modifying and reconfiguring existing resources. And that includes humans um, and their capabilities so that we can reorganize the we can reorganize the whole organization really quickly modular systems modular departments where and people that we can either shift out because they don't have the capabilities and new people that we can bring in new machines new things so change is getting faster and faster and this whole idea of dynamic capability is so that the organization can reconfigure itself really rapidly in response to market changes so the question is how do we develop those and this is what the research, this study was finding. There's kind of seven of these. Firstly, they need to focus on developing dynamic capability, the, these reconfigurable um, units within the organization. And that includes the systems. So the systems need to be flexible themselves, not just a set computer that lasts for 20 years anymore. Um, and that's done largely by strengthening the relationship with the network members and strategic partners. And this is why that becomes important and why this focus on strategic relationships becomes important is that they found, and this was the primary finding of the study, was that relationships with strategic partners, partners have a more significant impact on the development of dynamic capability than customer relation, their relationships with their customers. This is interesting. And the reason it's interesting is when you think about the whole agile movement, most of the feedback comes from the customer. And what they're saying is that does not significantly develop on its own a dynamic capability. It's the relationship with their strategic partners that does that more than the than the customer. Whilst the customer feedback is really important, that doesn't on its own develop the dynamic capabilities. It just helps you to get the product closer to what the client wants. It doesn't help to transform the organization. And then what it's saying is you need to reduce centralized and formalized organizational structures. They're too slow. And the suggestion here is that you need greater decentralization, creating more like teams and, uh, and more flexibility it tends to enhance things like knowledge exchange, creativity, and helps to do foster the dynamic capability development. Integrating customer relationship management, CRM, with strategic and operational units so that they're getting all of the information with the strategy development. And the criticism that they've got, what tends to happen in organizations is they tend the strategy 
and the feedback that they're getting from the customers and the relationship that they're developing with the customers don't aren't often connected. And they're saying if you connect the two and you align them, you become much more dynamic. You you have to as a as a consequence of that become more, have a greater dynamic capability. The fifth one is about balancing customer relationships with strategic partnering capabilities. So there's a balance going on here, even though the strategic partner has a greater impact on the development of of the dynamic capabilities those relational capabilities quite often come through the customer relationships as well and that balance. The penultimate point that they make is having to develop a learning orientation both across the organisation and across all of the people. So people need to reconfigure the way they're thinking about their work, about what we're doing, what how we're entering into the market, how we're thinking about knowledge, that has to continue that is now continually changing and quicker so we need to get right with a plan almost we need a stronger learning orientation and a focus on developing that in organizations and the last one is that in terms of resources that firms need to focus on and invest in developing those dynamic capabilities because what they do is they, as it says here, mediates the relationship between relational capability and firm, firm performance. And it's those seven that help with those two capabilities. So I will shut up now and uh, questions, comments, thoughts. Nothing like a bit of light. Yeah, it kind of ties in a little bit with what uh, Toyota still do, I think, which is they have um, long-term relationships with their suppliers so they don't try to screw them over with, like, tendering for parts, you know, lower price and all that every year, like lots of companies do. Yeah. They try to build long-term thing. Actually, Toyota got into trouble when they... Uh, tried to break into the US uh, a bit aggressively and that's why the Prius kind of got into trouble because they actually um, they kind of reached their own values and they started treating their suppliers like commodities and um, destroyed relationships and uh, breached trust and it kind of led to a kind of a downward spiral for a while in Toyota but I'm not yeah. sure what I presume that recovered at this point but it kind of rings a bell for me about while agility would, uh, a lot of agility folks would say, well, you know, maybe we try to, instead of kind of outsourcing, maybe we try to insource, particularly try to avoid outsourcing the crown jewels, as I call it, you know, a metaphor for if you have some IP, you know, keep it yourself. And then kind of mm. uh, maybe as it gets commoditized later, maybe you can uh, maybe uh, maybe outsource it. But it, it does ring a bell for me about having trusting relationships. If you do have, if you do need to have a supply chain ecosystem, as Russ calls it, um, maybe we need better relationships between suppliers. It does ring a bell for me. Yeah, definitely. And and together with those strategic partners, create that dynamic capability, the ability to together reconfigure because you can't do it without them. Yeah. That's the only thing that troubles me a little bit because um, something that I often get caught saying is whatever about changing our own organization is almost impossible to change a vendor. Yeah. So um, 
it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because often the suppliers we're dealing with are often bigger than us and they have their own thing going on. It's organizational change is really, really difficult as it is. So yeah. how do we get the planets to align? You know, I'm kind of curious about that. But yeah, I think the relationships would be important, but the the alignment I think could be could be tricky. Yeah, and I think there's a there's kind of a new wave of consultancy moving into this area um, around that the relationship of um, between strategic partners and helping to develop those relationships. It specifically in order to create that kind of flexibility between them. Um, so that they're both flexible, just because of the, the speed of change that's occurring. So, yeah, thanks, John. Any other comments, thoughts, questions? Hey, David, can I... Um, the delivery of all this knowledge to the workplace, unless all of the workers are robots, and the robots will do whatever you say, so there seems to be a tension between the old and what's new and finding the road down the middle to deliver this because things die, you know, as uh, as John says, the 60s are dead, but things die. And so, but people don't accept that their knowledge or their wisdom that they have put into play in the workplace are dead. And then the new things are brought in, and the point being that AI is basically bringing the past into the present and projecting it forward based on the past. And even generative AI has some training set up to do that. And to me, that whole thing about cybersecurity and the importance of cybersecurity is that you can't be completely secure with all of the AI and generative AI. Cybersecurity, you can't be. You can't be safe with that. And in some ways, that maybe is good because honesty, if you're not honest and you're a corporation, like recently Toyota, shutting down their plants in Japan and saying for 30 years we've falsified safety information that just came out this week so what happens is that honesty is now more important than ever which is a trait that is thought of as a human trait and it has to be delivered in in all organizations or you're going to it's going to be known and it's going to be known faster now than it ever has been known before which comes back to so the wisdom I, thing. Yeah. The consequences so, that John was talking about. Yeah. So I I there's this tension between the old ways, even though the old is dead, there's this tension between the wisdom that was thought of then and what's being brought in and the and the companies that are being going to be successful and the politicians that have a greater control with greater governments in the world is going to have to find a way down the middle to make it work or it's going to fail. Yeah, that's what we're exploring at the moment, I suppose, and continually exploring. And uh, we had a conversation this afternoon in this afternoon's thing about 
um, one of the problems with the legislative in most or in most countries is they're miles behind. They don't understand. They don't understand the technology. They don't understand what it can do. And th these are global problems that are not going to be solved by one nation state making laws. Um, and especially when we get into the idea of kind of, well, things like Cambridge Analytica doing what they did um, and those kinds of things. Like, this isn't something that one nation or a couple of nations can deal with. This And that, again, connects to the ethics thing that we were talking about, the consequences and how we're thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point, Norma. So, um, David, you raised, uh, you know, uh, the government, getting everyone on side. So John brought that up, you know, you have to get the vendors. It's it's not just one stakeholder, there's multiple stakeholders. Mm -hmm. uh, and most organizations are having to deal with that some way, shape or form. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was looking at this and trying to see how you could apply it to some crisis that's going on. Um, climate change, but if climate change, if you just look at climate change, a very siloed, it's more than that. Mm. Um, so it, it's that complexity, that complicated, it certainly helps uh, and moves it a little bit, but it's not necessarily going to um, manage the change completely. Mm. Yeah, which comes back to the whole thing. So what they're proposing in this paper is this whole idea about focusing on um how do we get the mechanisms of change right through strategic partnerships, essentially, is what they're saying. And it's the same with the, the climate change things. We need the, you know, the, the globe needs to solve this problem. A country isn't going to do it. Um, or even a collection of countries, th this is a global issue. But these are global issues, you know, AI, the whole idea of knowledge economy. And in this morning's session, there was um, Salish, who's from India, was saying that their economy is rapidly changing and it wasn't considered to be a knowledge economy. It's now becoming both a knowledge economy and a production economy. And they're looking at how they're managing that. And th that what's happening is that how do you keep you take this is the whole dynamic capabilities. How do you keep the technology up to date? Uh, you know, you buy something that's that costs a lot of money, and it's obsolete in well, sometimes months. And it's it's configuring the system so that they can keep up. So when it's talking about it from an organizational perspective, um, or even a country perspective, it's where are the resources going in order to create these capabilities, the relational capabilities and the dynamic capabilities, both within the organization, but also within the nation states as well, and then between them, I think. Yeah. Brilliant. Ooh, got some chat. Any other comments, thoughts? Oh, thanks, John. Yeah, that's really good. I'll look at that. Dynamic capabilities. Sorry, Russ. Is this is this dynamic capabilities literature, or, is, or do they use the term just sort of generally? Um. Yeah. Come. So. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 
Teeth. dynamic capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's it's there's quite a few studies showing that the development of, of dynamic capabilities for organisations becoming real real critical importance because of the speed of change. Therefore, the organisations need to be able to configure themselves really quickly, reconfigure themselves, which means that the people need to. And how do we go about that? And how do we keep responding to the changes? And they're just going to get faster. And David, how how do how do we bring into the conversation that even with all the change and everything that's happening fast and all of the good that come out of it, that there's still things we need to pay attention to. There's still things that are not resolved. They talk about AI and other things, making them colorblind, but we still need to pay attention to that. There are still things to do that need to be done. Yes. And it's, it's a big issue. So this is where, from my perspective, this is where the nation states are meant to be stepping in from an educational point of view. They're meant to be preparing the next citizens for what's coming. And that includes things like ethics, being able to think, critically think, wisdom, and those kinds of things, so that they're able to deal with this. And there was a, there was a study done quite a few years ago, actually, uh, must have been 10, 15 years ago, that was showing that with a lot of the technical STEM subjects, so if you go in and do a master's uh, um, a master's of engineering, an MEng or something like that, they and I can't remember the percentage, but the percentage of information that they were presented with in the first year by the time they get to the first, by the by the time they get to the end, it's out of date. So it's not about memorization of all this content because it's moving too fast. It's about how do how do we reconfigure and how do we extend? So there's this whole idea about extended cognition, about not memorizing stuff because the systems can do that. We you know the whole thing that we did with. Um, uh, personal knowledge management you know you can stuff things into obsidian you can put things into databases it's how do you access it how do you validate the information and then how do you use it so we've got a mass you know you just look at the internet it's probably one of the largest extended cognition systems that there is on the planet that's exactly what it is you don't need to learn it memorize it we can actually go off and use it and now what we can do with ai if it's good ai we can outsource that even further we can actually help use it to help us thinking about it but then comes the problem is you've got to be able to think about how it's thinking about it that's what i mean because you've got to be able to pick up the flaws and i you know you kind of uh, I, I go in and play with it and yeah it's wanting so the least in in that aspect and the biases you know, the whole thing about being colorblind, but the other biases that are inherent because of the program is there, you know. Right. It's being able to spot that and how do we educate people in order to be able to do that and have this whole idea about that education isn't about technical skills and things. It's about having, and this is the wisdom thing, doing things that are useful and good for society rather than trying to destroy it. And on that happy 
end of year note. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the top of the hour. Um, thank you for everything in 2023. And um, thank you, David. I look forward to playing some more in 2024. Ooh, that rhymes. Thank you. And I look forward to your research briefing on bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. It's out on tomorrow. Yeah, that's All no bullshit. All together, fit and proper, Doc. All together, fit and proper. <laughs> Brilliant. Happy, Happy New Year, New Year Happy and New I'll year. see you next Happy year. year. Thank Bye, you. Bye, guys. Good Thank you. Thank you.